Good morning. I'll be sharing um, Judges chapter 11, verses 1 through 11, and then verses 29 through 40. Now, Jephthah the Gileite was a mighty warrior, but he was the son of a prostitute. Gilead was the father of Jephthah, and Gilead's wife also bore him sons. And when his wife's sons grew up, they drove Jephthah out and said to him, You shall not have an inheritance in our father's house, for you are the son of another woman. Then Jephthah fled from his brothers, and he lived in the land of Tob. And worthless fellows collected around Jephthah and went out with him. And after a time, the Ammonites made war against Israel. And when the Ammonites made war against Israel, the elders of Gilead went to bring Jephthah from the land of Tob. And they said to Jephthah, Come and be our leader, that we may fight against the Ammonites. But Jephthah said to the elders of Gilead, Did you not hate me and drive me out of my father's house? Why have you come to me now when you are in distress? And the elders of Gilead said to Jephthah, That is why we have turned to you now, that you may go with us and fight against the Ammonites and be our head over all the inhabitants of Gilead. And Jephthah said to the elders of Gilead, If you bring me home again to fight against the Ammonites, and the Lord gives them over to me, I will be your head. And the elders of Gilead said to Jephthah, The Lord will be witness between us if we do not do as you say. So Jephthah went with the elders of Gilead, and the people made him head and leader over them. And Jephthah spoke all his words before the Lord at Mizpah. 29. Then the spirit of the Lord was upon Jephthah, and he passed through Gilead and Manasseh, and passed on to Mizpah of Gilead. And from Mizpah of Gilead, he passed on to the Ammonites. And Jephthah made a vow to the Lord and said, If you will give the Ammonites into my hand, then whatever comes out from the doors of my house to meet me when I return in peace from the Ammonites shall be the Lord's, and I will offer it up for a burnt offering. So Jephthah crossed over to the Ammonites to fight against them, and the Lord gave them into his hand, and he struck them from Aror to the neighborhood of Mineth, twenty cities, and as far as Abel Karamim, with a great blow. And so the Ammonites were subdued before the people of Israel. And then Jephthah came to his house at Mizpah, and behold, his daughter came out to meet him with tambourines, and with dances. She was his only child. Besides her, he had neither son nor daughter. And as soon as he saw her, he tore his clothes, and he said, Alas, my daughter, you have brought me very low, and you have become the cause of great trouble to me. 
for I have opened my mouth to the Lord, and I cannot take back my vow. Then she said to him, My father, you have opened your mouth to the Lord. Do to me according to what has gone out from your mouth, now that the Lord has avenged you on your enemies, on the Ammonites. And so he said, and so she said to her father, Let this thing be done for me. Let me alone two months, that I may go up and down on the mountains and weep for my virginity, I and my companions. And so he said, Go. Then he sent her away for two months, and she departed, she and her companions, and wept for her virginity on the mountains. And at the end of two months, she returned to her father, who did with her according to his vow that he had made. She had never known a man, and it became a custom in Israel that the daughters of Israel went year by year to lament the daughter of Jephthah, the Gileadite, four days in the year. Thank you, Dawn. That helps preserve my voice for a little bit. A long passage. Before we look at that, though, let's go and to the Lord and ask for his help. Oh, Father, we come to you as your people. Again, thanking you for the great work that you do in our, our hearts by which you cause us to be born again to the living hope. So, Lord, we come to you not on the basis of our good works, not making a vow to you and thinking that you'll accept us according to the greatness of our vow, not believing that you are a cruel monster who uh, will, will punish us uh, unless we conform to certain expectations we have, but rather understanding your grace and mercy by which you are both holy and righteous and yet loving and gracious, sending Christ to die to take the punishment we deserve. Oh, Lord, help us understand your character aright. Help us think of you as you truly are, and not just the ideas that might form in our heads um, that we might just conjure up about you, and then worship that false God, even thinking that is the true God, but yet worshiping falsely because we have not the right understanding of you before our eyes. So, Lord, use your word to guide us into the, the truth of who you really are. Lord, forgive us for all the ways in which we've served other gods. We've served things other than you. We've taken pleasure and put all our confidence in things that, that are not you and that we've done that and it is wrong and it is sinful in your eyes. Lord, we ask that you would forgive us for that. Cleanse us of all unrighteousness. Help us to cling to the cross as we see our sin on the one hand and know that's bad, Lord. Let us hate it, but let us hate it in light of the, the truth of the redemption that we have in Christ that it is wicked and sinful, but it is forgiven sin if we are in Christ. Lord, give us a good understanding of Christ and who he is toward us. And Lord, grant that we as a church family would together be holding our truth uh, tightly with each other, and we would be encouraging each other and spurring one another on that we might run the race that you've set before us. Lord, open our eyes to this passage. Help us to glean great things uh, about you from it. And let it impact our lives. Strengthen our faith. We pray this in Christ's name. Amen. Well, that story that Don read is, I think, one of the saddest stories in all of the Bible. 
basically what we see there is a man sacrifices his own daughter. He, he offers her up as a burnt offering. I think that's what's really going on there. Some people try to give a different interpretation. They'll say that basically he sent her off to kind of be a nun or uh, perhaps something different. I think, in my opinion, those different interpretations stem from an idea to really cleanse the Bible, sanitize the Bible of all the icky parts to make it more like a children's story, and the idea that, that we don't really understand that the true nature of what's going on in Judges is that the people are being horribly wicked. People say, no, a true godly person wouldn't sacrifice their daughter. Well, yeah, that's the point. They're not true godly people in this book. So we've, we've gone through the book. You, you've seen that the nation of Israel is not doing what they're supposed to. Uh, they're not honoring God as he really is. And this is what happens when they don't. They destroy themselves. So why? Why would a man sacrifice his daughter like that? Particularly fathers, I'm sure you can... Maybe you feel a weightiness to this passage. You can't imagine a father actually doing that. Why would he do it? The answer that I want to suggest for us might be surprising. It's because of religion. It's it's a religious thing. And let me tell you what I mean by religion before you get worried. Religion is people's attempt to do something to impress God so that God would give them what they want. It is when we try to do something to make God happy, to offer God something in return of getting what we want from him. Uh, One person put it this way. He said, religion is working hard at something in order to earn acceptance and approval and the life you think you deserve because of your obedient performance. Many people think Christianity is a religion. People think the Bible teaches that if you work hard and be staunchly committed to God, he will accept you and reward you. Religion is why Jephthah killed his daughter. There was something that Jephthah desperately wanted, and we'll see that as we go through the passage. And he thought that if he offered God a very precious sacrifice, that God would then give him what he wanted. That's religion. And this passage here serves as a warning to us not to go down the road of religion, not to... Not to Think that we're Christians honoring God, but actually, it's just religion. And friends, if you're here this morning and you're not a Christian, well, I'm glad you came for this message. Because in my experience, a lot of non-Christians out there think they're objecting to Christianity when actually they're objecting to religion, which is something that real Christianity objects to as well. I mean, think about in the news, maybe the stereotype of a Christian. You might have a very controlling father who who makes rash decisions in the name of religion at the the expense of his his daughter, right? That that might be a, a popular portrayal of Christianity. However, that portrayal that we see here is not what Christianity is. This... This episode in Judges is meant to alert us to the fact of the danger of merely following religion. This is not what we're supposed to emulate. The Bible objects to that kind of religion as well. And if you're here this morning and you are a Christian, well, it's, it's important that you're here too, so that we don't follow that same route. We don't go down the road of turning our, our real Christianity, our relationship with Jesus Christ, into something that is mere religion. So let's see what we can learn from this story. Well, the first thing we learn about Jephthah is that he's a mighty warrior. 
And I don't know what image, image you have in your mind of a mighty warrior, but maybe somebody who's, who's quite big, tough, can lead, can, can be wise in battle. Well, I think that's pretty much who Jephthah is. He's a mighty warrior. Uh, but his road to get there was not one that was pleasant. His dad probably had a high position in Israel. But who is his mother? A prostitute. And what kind of status is that going to give Jephthah and his family? Uh, not a good one, right? In some sense, Jephthah is the sin of his family. He's going to be the scorn of his parents. See, his very existence brought shame on his family. And it seems like from an early age, he's driven out of the family, out of the house. And he goes into the land of Tob. We're not really sure where that is. Probably a wilderness, mountainous area somewhere to the west, to the east, rather, of, uh, of Israel. And he goes there, and it says, worthless fellows collected around Jephthah and went out with him. So, so think of this warrior, this thug kind of guy. He surrounds himself with other thugs, worthless fellows, and probably is raiding and pillaging. That's how he's able to get along. He's out there, cast out on his own devices, and he figures out how to manage for himself. That's what makes him such a warrior. Now, he lives at a time when the nation of Israel is being sacked by the Ammonites. Chapter 10 provides critical information about that. We don't have time to read it all, but let me just tell you what happens. We learn from chapter 10 that the people of Israel have forsaken their God. And God has therefore sold them into the hand of the Philistines and the Amorites. And it says they crushed and oppressed the people of Israel. And they did this for 18 years. The people of Israel cry out to the Lord, save us, save us. And God says that he's not going to save them. At least not on account of their crying out to him. Why is that? It's because he knows that their tears they cry are no tears of repentance. They're simply tears of regret. The people of Israel are not sorry that they've offended God. They're just sorry that their offending God has led them into trouble. It's the kind of repentance we see of politicians all the time these days. You know, they do something wrong and everybody turns against them. They repent, but not because they're really sorry for what they've done wrong. They're only sorry that it's cost them votes. Of course, that's not true in every single instance, I'm I'm sure. But it's at least a general trend. Likewise, Israel is not repenting over her crime against the Lord. She's only repenting of the results that it got her. And friends, right there, that's religion for you. God is a means to an end. The people want, uh, they want help, they want relief, so they get religious and they call out to the Lord. And God will have none of that. His punishment of them is to really hand them over to their own devices. You've gone after other gods? God says, so let those other gods protect you. And the people of Israel realize that they are are in a tough place. They've got to basically save themselves. So what do they do? They look to the biggest, meanest, toughest guy around. Who's that? Jephthah. Right. I love the shock in Jephthah's response when his brothers ask him to be their leader. What? Why are you asking me? You, You guys despise me. And uh, he says, you don't even like me. You're just asking me because you're in trouble. And I love their response. Yeah, that's right why we're asking you. We're in trouble. (laughs) Don't think we'd be asking you otherwise. See, there's an interesting parallel here between the way they approach Jephthah and the way the people approach God. They don't get how it is dishonoring to Jephthah when they cast him out and then just ask him to come back when they really need him. 
so also they don't get how dishonored it is to God when they essentially cast God out of Israel. We don't want to worship him anymore. And then they come to God simply when they're in trouble. But Jephthah is not honorable like God is, so he hatches a plan. Uh, His plan is that he's going to make a deal with them. Okay, I'll go out, I'll fight against the Ammonites, and if I win, I'll be head over you. Think about that. The guy who gets cast out of the house ends up coming back as their leader if he can win in battle. Now, what do we make of Jephthah here? I might be going out on a little bit of a limb when I say this, but I think we could understand something of Jephthah's motivation here. I think the thing that most motivates him is he wants the respect of his brothers. He wants to be over the people who kicked him out of the house and despised him. He doesn't want to spend the rest of his life in Tob with worthless men. He wants to get back in the house, and he wants to be ruler over that house. Imagine you're Jephthah. You're kicked out at an early age because of no fault whatsoever of your own, right? I mean, it's not Jephthah's fault that he was born of a prostitute. You're considered the sin of the family. You're treated terribly. What are you going to want? You're going to imagine, one day I'll show them. They'll regret all their unkindness of me. Now, friends, I I suggest that as Jephthah's motivation because I can't think of anything else that's going to motivate him to risk his life against the Ammonites to uh, get back into the house. I mean, Jephthah here is, he's not really hurt by the Ammonites. He's not living in the place where the Ammonites are attacking. And they're attacking the people who don't like him. So in reality, the Ammonites are more like his friend. You know, the enemy of your enemy is your friend. Jephthah could fight for the Ammonites, not against them. Why does he risk his life to go out into battle here? What's he going to gain from it? And there doesn't seem like there's any honorable motive in really anybody here. He's not just doing it because he wants to sacrifice for his brothers, turn the other cheek, do that kind of thing. No, he's... He's in it for himself. I think we see that. I think that the motivation he has in going out to fight against the Ammonites is so he can get head over them. Now, friends, here he misses the true nature of God. If he had known God, that motivation that drove him to fight the Ammonites wouldn't have been there in the first place. He needed to know from Psalm 68 that God is a father to the fatherless. And then when he was driven out there and cast out and left to his own devices, he wouldn't have just meditated on how he could get back at his brothers. He would have known the kindness of the Lord. And that particular kindness of the Lord that shows up when we're cast out, when we're brought low, when through no fault of our own, and sometimes because of fault of our own, we are in a place of utter despair. God's there for those people. Maybe you've been cast out. Maybe a loved one has walked out on you. Maybe you are treated horribly and shamed. There's two different responses. You could become bitter, angry, and manipulative. You could turn to drugs and alcohol and pornography and become selfish and destructive. Or you could turn to God and know his kindness in a unique way. Know his love to the loveless. And then your life is not going to have bitterness and And envy, it's not going to be nasty stuff that will spew out. It will be love. You'll have life. You'll know God. And then when you interact with others, God will be known to them as well. See, Jephthah, if he had done that, could have still fought against the Ammonites. But then he would be fighting for his brothers out of love. 
we, uh, we see somebody else that does that. There's, a, I think, a direct parallel in, Je- in Jephthah's life and somebody else in the Bible, and that is Joseph. Joseph, too, was kicked out of his house, if you know the story. And, and he suffered tremendously. But what we see in Joseph is not the bitterness. It's not the, I want to get back at them. When Joseph is miraculously given head and authority over his brothers, what does he do? He doesn't have him killed, which would have been expected and he could easily have done. No, he shares his wealth with them. See, that's what happens when we know the one true God. When we know God's grace and kindness to us, then we can share that grace and kindness to others. But Jephthah doesn't know that. For reasons we'll see, he doesn't know who God is, and therefore he can only think about getting them back. But in order for his plan to work, in order to be head over them, what does he have to do? Well, he has to win the battle. I mean, this isn't just make this deal, okay, I'm head. Now he's got this this incredible army to fight. Well, how's he going to do that? Well, Jephthah knows enough about Israel's history to know that if you want to be successful in battle, you've got to have the Lord on your side. You've got to get help from the Lord. Well, how's he going to do that? Well, first, he has this ceremony where he repeats the deal that he's made to the Lord. We see that. That, by the way, reminds me about people who want to have their weddings at church sometimes. Get people called, want to have their wedding at church. Do they go to a church? No. Are they particularly interested in ever going to a church? No. They just think somehow if they have it in a church, you know, God will be on their side and it will all work out better for them. No, it doesn't work like that. But Jephthah speaks, you know, has this religious ceremony. He speaks these words before the Lord. Second thing he does is he makes a vow. And that's the main part of this passage. Verse 30. Look at there with me. Chapter 11, verse 30. If you will give the Ammonites into my hand, then whatever comes out from the doors of my house, I will offer it up as a burnt offering. Whatever comes out of the doors of my house. Now, if you have your ESV there, you might note that there's a little note there that says, whomever comes out of my house. Jephthah here, I believe, is thinking that he's going to sacrifice a person. One commentator suggested that maybe he was hoping it was his mother-in-law. Probably not, but uh, commentator's having a little bit of fun. But anyway, he's planning to sacrifice a person. I have a great relationship with my mother-in-law, by the way, so no no problem. Um, Yeah, he's not making, as some would think, a rash vow. He's He's not like he's really excited, okay, I'll vow this before the Lord. No, this is a planned, calculated thing. And it makes perfect sense if he's thinking of God as just like all the other gods in the land. You see, and there's a reason why we, we have evidence that that's what he's doing. I, uh, Dawn skipped, because I told her to, a huge section in the middle of this passage where Jephthah tries to have a diplomatic approach with the king of the Amorites. Um, In other words, Jephthah tries not to go to war against them, but he tries to just sort of send letters back and forth, uh, hoping to secure peace. I'm not really sure if this is a a really good faith effort to secure peace or just a stalling tactic. But either way, what's important about that passage is that Jephthah says in verse 24 uh, something that puts God, the God of Israel, on the same level as the other gods. Let me read it for you. He's saying to the king, Will you not possess what Chermosh your God gives you to possess, and all that the Lord God has dispossessed before us, we will possess. Notice what he's doing there. 
He's like, your God gives you your stuff, our God gives us our stuff, and it's all just sort of the same. It's just, you know, a different God, but the same idea of how God works. He doesn't know the true character of Israel. If he had known the true character of Israel's God, he would have not ever said that. See, he's thinking of a, the, the way that it worked back then is kind of a, I scratch your back, you scratch mine kind of deal. The people would scratch the deities back. By the way, I don't, these deities didn't actually exist. They're just in people's minds. But they thought, you scratch the deities back, he'll scratch your back, you give him something he wants, he'll give you something you want. They thought of it like a bargaining deal. You didn't go to the deity empty-handed. You always had to go with something to get him to do what you wanted to do. And this is the essence of Jephthah's vow here. Verse 30 is, is basically saying, if you give me this thing I really want, I'll give you this valuable possession, a human sacrifice. What's really sick about this is that this is the exact same way the Ammonites thought about their God. The God of the Ammonites was Charmash, or another way he's talked about is Moloch. Moloch just sounds bad, doesn't it? The reason why people don't name their kids Moloch. Now, maybe one of you did. Sorry, no offense. Right? But Moloch, as they thought of him, again, he's not real. He's just how they thought of him. He's the fire god. He's made of fire. And the way they worshipped him was making a big brass statue with the face of a calf. And his arms are stretched out. You can do a Google image search. It's all over the internet. His arms are stretched out as if he's ready to receive something from the people. You know what he's ready to receive from the people? Their children. They would sacrifice their children to Moloch. If there's a famine and they desperately wanted food, they would take some of their children and they would sacrifice him to this God. If there was a battle and they really wanted to be victorious, just kind of look at what Jephthah's doing, they would take their children and they'd offer him before, the, before Moloch. Moloch is there as a statue ready to receive their offering. And here's the tragedy of this passage. That Jephthah is worshiping the God of Israel as if he were really Moloch. Even though Israel conquers the Ammonites here militarily, the Ammonites conquer Israel religiously because they've totally imported their God onto the Israelites. No wonder Joshua, when they go into the land, tells the people of Israel, you need to get rid of all the Canaanite religion. He knows that if the people encamp next to the other people and they kind of merge together, that the nation is going to lose their understanding of God. That's exactly what they do here. So, Jephthah goes off to battle. He comes back victorious. And then he, he comes to his house and there's his daughter coming out to meet him. She's happy, right? She's dancing. She's got the tamarines. And she's like, go, Dad, you won. Yay, you're the leader. And he's utterly devastated. Verse 35 says, as soon as he saw her, he tore his clothes and said, alas, my daughter, you have brought me very low, and you have become the cause of great trouble to me. Why is he so devastated? He's devastated because he realized he needs to keep up his end of the deal. God brought him victory. He needs to offer this to the Lord. Uh, we get a little bit of a hint of how selfish this man is. Because he doesn't seem concerned for his daughter, does he? He's just concerned about what's happened to him. Now, some people ask the question, why does he follow through with this vow if it causes him so much pain? 
First of all, one of the reasons he follows through is not, as some people suggest, because if you promise God something, you've got to do it no matter what. That, that's not the point of this passage. If you promise God something that would be sinful to give him, it doesn't honor God if you go through with it. Jephthah shouldn't have gone through with it. No, he, he keeps the vow for the same reason he made it in the first place. He really wants the upper hand over his brothers, and he's willing to sacrifice anything to get it. And he believes that he's in a relationship with God. If he wants something from God, he's got to give something to God. So it's a real bummer, but that's what he's got to do. Why does his daughter go through with it? That's even more puzzling to me. She seems to fully embrace the idea. Look there at verse 36. She says to him, My father, you have opened your mouth to the Lord. Do to me according to what has gone out of your mouth. Now that the Lord has avenged you on your enemies, on the Ammonites. See, her response doesn't seem to make sense to me. Well, why wouldn't she plead for her life? Surely she values her life more than this. Well, first of all, we've got to realize how much authority a father would have in that context. Or for better or worse, she's probably been trained to want her father's will over her regardless. But I think much more you could even realize that, that perhaps she has bought into the false system of religion just as much as her father has. There were other human sacrifices back then in the ancient uh, world. Not all the victims were unwilling. Some of them believed so much that this is how God works that they just embraced the idea and went off and sacrificed themselves. I mean, Paul talks about the idea that somebody could give their body to be burnt but not have love. Religious devotion can come in many forms and many of them not good. So the daughter goes off and mourns the fact that she'll never have children. And then she comes back and he goes through with his vow. And see, the irony here is that the very thing he wanted in making the vow in the first place, he loses because of the vow. What did he want? He wanted to be important. He wanted to be successful. He wanted respect. And see, in that culture, the thing that would give you the most respect And the most success is having descendants to pass down everything to you so that your name is not forgotten. And what does he do? In his effort to be the head, to be the leader, he cuts off his offspring. His name will not be remembered. Except, of course, now that it's written in God's word and remembered tragically. He made his vow so that he could be exalted high and yet his vow has brought him down so low. See, the lesson from this is simple. Religion kills. Remember what religion is. It is a system where we want something very badly and we think that God might be able to give it to us, so we give him something he wants to get what we want. But see, it never delivers on its promises. You know, sometimes I hear people say that, well, you know, I try to talk to them about Christianity and they'll, they'll tell me it doesn't really matter what you believe. What matters is that you are devout and sincere in your belief. Oh, but Jephthah was very devout and sincere in his belief. No more devout believer in all of the Bible, perhaps. But it was tragic. See, the Bible teaches actually the opposite. It's it's not that it doesn't matter what your belief is as long as you hold it sincerely. Rather, it doesn't matter so much how strong your belief is. You see, God helps those who are weak in faith. What matters is that you have the belief in the right thing. Let me give you an illustration. I've told it before, but it's worth repeating. Imagine two people are going to climb up two different ladders, Bob and Jim, Okay. Bob believes very strongly in his ladder. He has great faith in his ladder, devoted to his ladder. The problem is it's so weak it'll never hold him. Jim, on the other hand, 
has very little faith in his ladder, but it's a perfectly good ladder, and it'll be fine to take him up to the top of wherever he's trying to go. Which, which guy is going to be successful? Not Bob, right? Bob's going to get partway up, and he's going to fall. It doesn't matter how much faith he has in his ladder, his faith is not going to save him. Why? Because it's not strong enough? No, because it's in the wrong thing. Jim, however, he'll get up safely. He might sweat, he might panic, but he's going to get up. Why? Because his faith is so strong? No, because he has faith in the right thing. See, religion kills because it promises us if we're just devoted enough, if we are just sincere enough, if we just sacrifice enough, then God will give us what we've always wanted. The problem is twofold. First, the motivation is wrong to begin with. We're not supposed to desire after anything other than God, primarily as our first and chief love. God's not a means to an end. And second, that system where we give something and get something just doesn't exist. It's broken. It's not there at all. But friends, so much of what passes for Christianity in this world is simply religion. Why? Because it's easy. It's manageable. We like rules for ways that we can get what we want. We like to feel entitled to things. We like to think that we can secure the future by being good now and earning something later. This also works because it's so easy to preach. I mean, if you're a pastor, don't you want a congregation full of people who are so devoted they would sacrifice their child to the goal? At least then you won't have problems staffing the nursery. They're, they're willing to sacrifice their child. They'll be willing to care for others, right? No, I'm, I'm kidding. Don't have problems staffing the nursery. That wasn't an wasn't a, a advertisement there. But no, it's just that religion can motivate people, and it does motivate people. And they work really hard at it, and the leaders give it, and the people want it, and they're all going straight to hell. Because it's a complete lie. The latter doesn't hold. It doesn't matter how devoted and sincere we are. If it's not the one true God that we're following in the way He tells us who He is and what to do, it's not going to help us. See, knowing God for who He is is greater than knowing mere religion. If Jephthah had known the one true God, he would have known that he didn't have to sacrifice his daughter in order to get God's help. He would have known God's grace and mercy. And God says in, in chapter 2, verse 1, all the way back to the beginning of Judges that we looked to uh, uh, maybe a couple months ago. God says, I will never break my covenant with you. That's why God's Spirit was upon Jephthah in the first place. See, the reason why Jephthah was successful in battle had nothing to do with his vow that he made to God, but rather had everything to do with God's vow that God made to him and to all the people of Israel. The vow, I will never break my covenant with you. God has said, I will be cursed if I do not keep my end of the deal. And for that reason, the Spirit of the Lord was upon Jephthah. And that's why he defeated the Ammonites. See, we do not have a system where God blesses us because of the good things we do. Rather, we have a system where God blesses us because he loves us in Christ. The language the Bible uses is, is language like he has set his love upon us. He has called us to be His, not because of any works we've done, but simply because of the greatness of His mercy. And you see, here's where the difference between Moloch and the real true God is the most stark. There, there's not only, I mentioned before, there's a parallel between Jephthah and Joseph. There's also a parallel between Jephthah and Abraham. 
Because Abraham was called by God to go off and sacrifice his son. The same language is used of the way Abraham talks about his son as the way Jephthah talks about his daughter. Only there was a huge difference. God stopped Abraham and said, don't lay a hand on the boy. And then God provides a sacrifice. And throughout Israel's history, we see the same thing. The angel of death comes to take the firstborn child of all, those, of all the people when he's judging Egypt. But what does God do? God provides a sacrifice, and then you put the blood on the door, and the angel of death will pass over those houses. And then in the, the Old Testament law, we read that the firstborn of, of everything is the Lord's. God has a special claim on the firstborn. But he doesn't want them to sacrifice the firstborn to the Lord because he provides a system whereby they can put a substitute and they sacrifice the substitute, the animal, in place of the child. And friends, at this point, the, the difference between Moloch and God can't be more opposite. Moloch stands there, again, he's not real, but the way they imagined him, as this brass statue, unflinching, stoic, with his arms out, ready for you to give it what it wants. God stands there as a loving, compassionate God with his arms open, giving to us instead. We read in the Bible that God so loved the world that He gave His only begotten Son. God did not spare His Son, but gave Him up for us. Friends, God lavishes us on us His free grace and mercy and sacrifice. I was talking to somebody about this passage this week. I love talking with people about the passage. If you ever don't have anything to do, give me a call. We'll talk about the passage for uh, that Sunday. I, I love doing it. And I was talking to the person about how the passage uh, you know, the point of the passage, and, and he said, yeah, it's, it's the tragedy of not having a substitute. That's what this passage is about. The tragedy of there not being a substitute. And you see, there's not a substitute because he doesn't know about the one true God. The God of Israel who provides a sacrifice in their place. And they're destroyed because of it. And you see, the major difference between the true God and idols, other than the fact that one is true and the other is just make-believe, is that the real God shows mercy and grace and kindness, and the idols do not. Moloch doesn't die for anybody's sins. And your idol for success won't die for your sins either. Your idol of acceptance will not atone for your lack of acceptance. Your idol of your appearance will not take shame upon itself for you. No, the gods you serve demand 100% obedience, 100% allegiance, or else. And there's nothing to make up for your weakness. There's no mercy and grace. But the true God delivers on his promise. He covers over our weakness and of our sin. Now, don't get me wrong. It's not that we can just then do whatever we want and it's okay. We don't have to not worry about being holy. No, we saw in the beginning that if the people were calling out to God simply for deliverance and not really wanting him, he he doesn't want to have anything to do with that. No, we need to be holy. But the Bible has a much radically deeper view of what holiness actually is. It's not when we do good so as to appease God that he doesn't squash us and give us what we want. The holiness in the Bible is when we actually want God more than anything else. God is our goal. To delight in Him is our greatest treasure. And see, that's a goal that we can't get on our own. 
We can't scratch God's back and then he gives us himself. We can't earn that favor. We can't earn that relationship. But he comes to us freely in Christ. When we come to Christ, when we come to faith, that means believing that Jesus' death on the cross was for us, was for in our place. He died to take away our sin, our shame, and we cling to him. We cling to him by faith. And that faith will save you. It doesn't save you on account of how strong it is or how devoted you are or how sincere you are, although God will lead you into deeper faith. No, it saves you because your faith is in the right person, in the God who really does save, who is kind and compassionate on us. Let's pray. Oh Lord, we thank you for this wonderful passage. We thank you that you have shown us and exposed before us the, the horribleness of idolatry. And you've done that not to condemn us, that, but that we might flee it and run to Christ. So Lord, open our hearts. Make us see the glory of Christ. Make us want him more than we want anything else. And follow hard after him. We pray this in Christ's name.